Good morning, and welcome to Summit Crossing. My name is Jason Cherry. I'm a member here at the Limestone Campus, and as most of you know, I'm not the usual guy that's up here. Our lead teaching pastor, Jamie Nettles, will be back preaching in a couple of weeks. Now, if this is your first Sunday, that means you've joined us as we are right in the middle of a series on the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. And this year, we celebrate the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Now, the five solas represent the, the main teaching that came out of the Protestant Reformation. So, justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, unto the glory of God alone. And in previous weeks, we've seen that justification is by grace alone. And so that means that, that grace is God's unmerited favor on sinners, whereby God is overcoming the sinful resistance in the human heart and calling, effectually calling, saving faith into existence. So justification is by grace alone, through faith alone. And so faith, as we've seen, is the instrument by which an individual receives the saving grace of God. So justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that in Christ alone piece is what we're going to be focusing on this morning. And so this morning we take no single passage as our sermon text because the teaching that salvation is in Christ alone is the teaching of the entire Bible. And it's not just that salvation is found in Christ alone, but it's that all things have been delivered by the Father to the Son, Jesus Christ, according to Matthew eleven twenty seven. It's not just that salvation is found in Christ alone, but it's that all things have been put under the feet of Christ, according to Hebrews 1, 8. It's not just that salvation is found in Christ alone, but it's that Christ's power is able to subject all things to himself, according to Philippians 3.21, so that we can say unequivocally that Christ is Lord of all, according to Acts chapter 10, verse 36. And so it's not just that salvation is found in Christ alone is the teaching of the entire Bible, but it's the fact that the confession of the Scriptures is that the rule and reign of Christ is being carried out in the life of the church as Jesus Christ saves a people for himself by grace through faith. And so the point is that Christ, the Christ who existed before the world began, according to John 1.1, 1, 1, the Christ who upholds all things by the word of his power, according to Hebrews 1.3, the Christ in whom all things were created, according to Colossians 1.16, is the very same Christ who is the head of the body, the church, according to Ephesians 4.15. And so it's not just that salvation is found in Christ alone. It's that underneath that fact is Jesus Christ exists and Jesus Christ forgives so that in everything, Jesus Christ might be preeminent, according to Colossians 1.18. And so the whole point then, as we set up this idea that salvation is in Christ alone, the whole point is that we understand and that we see from the very beginning 
that this teaching that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it's so much bigger than having your best life now. The teaching that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is so much bigger than than making you the best version of you. It's so much bigger than just self-help principles that you can live by to make life easier. It's so much bigger than just a ticket to heaven. And so this morning we're going to see two things. We're going to see first that justification by grace alone through faith alone is made possible in Christ alone. And second, we're going to ask an important clarifying question about this doctrine. So the first thing we need to see is that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. And all of that is made possible in Christ alone. So, the Protestant Reformation happened in the 16th century. And so, if you go back to the 16th century, and you go back to the medieval Roman Catholic Church, Rome taught, and still teaches to this day, according to their most recent catechism, Rome taught and teaches that Jesus Christ is not sufficient for salvation. They say, instead, that Jesus' work, plus the merits of Mary, plus the merits of the saints, plus your merits, add up to your final justification. And so they say that Christ is necessary, but not sufficient. They say, believe in Christ, but then trust your own merits. And then all of that will, over time, accumulate into something that is fitting for eternal life. That's the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church then and and still to this day. And so the Protestant reformers come along and they start looking in Scripture alone. And the Protestant reformers saw something very different in Scripture alone. For example, the Protestant reformers looked in a passage like Psalm chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. And they saw, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness, Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. See, they looked in a passage like this, and they see that God's not just going to clear the guilty on a whim. Because there's too much at stake for that. God is too holy for that. God is too just for that. God is too holy for that. As verse 4 says, God is holy and so evil cannot dwell with him. He must be separate from evil. Then verse 6, God is just, which says that he will necessarily destroy evil is is the language there in verse 6. That is, he will necessarily punish evil as a just God. Just like we would expect the judge in the courtroom to deliver a sentence to the convicted convict. And if the judge didn't do so, we would throw up our arms in angst and say, he's not just. So too, will God necessarily punish evil? Then the reformers looked into a passage like Psalm chapter 14, verses 2 through 3, which says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. 
So not only is God holy such that evil cannot dwell with him, not only is God just such that he necessarily will punish evil, but it's also the case that we are sinful. It's also the case that all humanity is corrupt. All humanity is evil. No one does good, not even one. So God is holy. He's separate from evil. God is just. He must punish evil. And we are sinful. What does this add up to? It means that God's holy, righteous, and just wrath is set on sinners. It's set on me. It's set on all of us. We have earned the wrath of God. That's what Romans 6.23 says. The wages of sin is death. Our wage is death. We have earned that wage. We have earned the wrath of God. Now you might say, but yeah, isn't, isn't God gracious? And the answer is yes, God is gracious. But God is not only gracious. God is gracious and God is just and God is holy. And so God can't merely brush sin under the rug. There's too much at stake for that. And so the reformers then look into a passage like Leviticus chapter 17, verses 5 through 6, which says, This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So what you have here in Leviticus 17 is you see the graciousness of God in play and you see God setting up this Old Testament sacrificial system where the people of Israel would come every year and offer these sacrifices to the Lord. Why? Well, it says at the end of verse 5, as a peace offering to the Lord. Now, why did God have them do this? Why did God have the Israelites make these yearly sacrifices? Why did God have them sacrifice the blood of animals? That's what it says there in verse 6. Why did God have them sacrifice the blood of animals? Well, Leviticus 17 verse 11 answers that question. Why are they sacrificing animals? Why are they sacrificing the blood of the animals? Verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. That's why. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. And so the life of the flesh that's in the blood is offered up as atonement for their souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So God is holy. He must be separate from sin. God is just. He must punish sin. We are sinful. And so the wrath of God is set on us. Justly so. And yet God in His grace has set up this system, this sacrificial system in the Old Testament where these animals are being offered. Their blood is being shed as a sacrifice because the life is in the blood. The point is that the penalty of sin is death. The penalty of sin is condemnation. The penalty of sin is blood payment. And so, by God's grace, in the Old Testament, the blood payment came through the sacrificed animals. And it was made year after year. 
And as the book of Hebrews explains, this, this sacrificial system of animals was very temporary and it was very inadequate. So the reformers see all of this happening in Scripture alone. They see that God is holy and just. He's separate from sin. He must punish sin. They see that we are sinful. We have merited and earned the wrath of God. And they see that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But then they look into a passage like Romans 8, verses 32 through 34. It says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. See, that's why we're Christians. That's why we worship. That's why we pronounce that Jesus is Lord of all. That's why we pronounce that Jesus is preeminent over all things. Because God has given Jesus up for us all as the new blood sacrifice, the once for all blood sacrifice. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Then the reformers look at a passage like 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 which takes all of those, those concepts and kind of condenses it into a simplified form. And it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. Not yearly. No, this is a permanent sacrifice. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. You see, the Reformers see all of this happening in Scripture alone. And what they see is that God the Father sent God the Son into the world not just to say something like, love your neighbor as yourself. God the Father sent God the Son into the world not just to be something like an ideal or an example for us to follow. God the Father sent God the Son into the world not just to do something like show kindness to the diseased or or to lead people to be the best version of themselves as possible. No, God the Father sent God the Son into the world, not just to say something, not just to be something, not just to do something. God the Father sent God the Son into the world to give something, to give life through the blood sacrifice, the once-for-all permanent blood sacrifice. And so Jesus Christ came into the world to give life through his blood sacrifice, through his death and then his resurrection, and to give that life to those who were previously dead in their trespasses and sins. And so that means a Christian is not somebody who is sinless. A Christian is somebody who confesses that they are sinful, and they put their faith in Christ alone, in Jesus alone, as the once-for-all blood payment, blood sacrifice for their sins so that they now can be right with God. They can now be innocent with God. And this faith in Jesus, as we see in previous weeks, it's the instrument by which we receive the forgiving grace of a God who is still holy and still just. Because remember, God is gracious, but He's not only gracious. He's also just. He's also holy. 
So the Protestant reformers look in Scripture alone and they see all of these things unfolding. They see all of these things happening. And, and the Protestant reformers were also very fond of the early church fathers. And in particular, they were kind of obsessed with St. Augustine, who lived in the 4th century. And St. Augustine used this illustration to explain this very point we're talking about here. And, and when St. Augustine used this illustration in the 4th century, the church has really been recycling this illustration for 1,600 years. So no doubt you've heard this. This is not new at all. In fact, it's very, very old. So here's, here's Augustine's illustration. You've probably heard some variation of it. Sin makes us so sick that we go and we kill the doctor. And the doctor is so good and so gracious that he rises from the dead... And from his own blood, he makes a medicine for his crazed killer. And faith is when we receive the medicine. And when we receive the medicine, the doctor then says, Forgive them. They know not what they do. When they kill me, I will heal them. You see, the reformers in the 16th century thought that was a truth worth liberating from the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church. Who taught that salvation begins with the physical act of baptism as the instrument of justification, whereby that baptized person must then cooperate with this infusion of grace. And Michael Horton has, has tried to explain this. And the infusion of grace in the Roman Catholic schemes kind of like your morning coffee. You wake up, you drink your morning coffee. And then you're able to go and do all of the tasks you're supposed to do. Now, if you didn't have your morning coffee, you'd still be able to do the same tasks. You just wouldn't do them quite as well. That's what grace is in the Roman Catholic scheme. And so functionally, what that means in the Roman Catholic scheme is that salvation comes by observing a set of sacred rules. There's seven of them. They call them sacraments. And you go throughout your life, different stages of life, you follow these sacred rules rules and and as you follow those sacred rules that then earns you that infusion of grace we just spoke about and over time the combination of your following the sacred rules and the infusion grace add up to something that's fitting enough for eternal life you know there's a there's a reason i'm protestant and i actually think about this a lot there's a reason i'm protestant and with every Protestant breath I take, I am protesting the Roman Catholic corruption of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, speaking for myself here, but I will continue to define myself in contrast to the Roman Catholic Church until they repent. Because Jesus Christ isn't just necessary for salvation. As Scripture alone teaches us, Jesus Christ is sufficient for salvation. And so what we've seen, going back to previous weeks, this all builds, justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, and all of that is made possible in Christ alone. So now with, with that established, we now need to, to, to ask an important clarifying question about this doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Here's the question. Can there be salvation apart from explicit faith in Jesus Christ? Can there be salvation 
apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And the reason, as we now jump 500 years from the 16th century to the 21st century, the reason we have to ask this question on this day is because one of the most common ideas that is spreading around today is this notion that people can experience salvation apart from Christ. In other words, it's this idea that it's this idea that God will save all good people or, or God will save all religious people. And just, you know, so long as you believe in some sort of higher power and you're trying to believe the right thing and you believe in some sort of higher power and you're trying to, trying to do as good as you can do, then you're going to have salvation. And, you know, Jesus is just one option among many. Jesus is just one option among many. And so, you know, if Jesus works for you, that's great. Good for you. But he's just one option among many. Now, the, the same people who make this argument are usually the same people who want to say that there's some spark of good within all of us. There's some spark of good within all of us. Or, or, or there's something that isn't that bad within all of us. And if you just believe in something higher than yourself and you just try to follow that spark of good, there's no God in heaven who's going to condemn you to hell. I mean, you're good people if you're doing that. The problem with that idea as we just saw in Scripture alone, is that we are dead spiritually. We are dead spiritually. And so, so these, these ideas that are so common today, these ideas don't understand the nature of our spiritual problem. They don't understand the extent of our depravity. These people would deny that human beings are dead in sin. They would deny that human beings are totally separated from a holy God. And instead they would just say something like, you know, you just lost your way. You don't need a, a savior who's a blood sacrifice for sin. Just how antiquated is that? How old-fashioned? That's, you don't need that. You've just lost your way. And you know, if you've just lost your way, you don't need a blood sacrifice for sin and all those crude ideas. You know, if you've just lost your way, you know what you need? You just need, to, you just need a good plan. You just needed some good advice. You know, and if Jesus works for you and he gives you the good advice you need, then good for you. That's great for you. But, you know, there's other options. You know, there, there's mysticism. There's, there's Oprah. There's Christian science or uh, the power of positive thinking is really popular today. Or if you, if you must keep your Jesus, then just make sure that Jesus is an example. You know, he said, love your enemy as yourself. Follow that example. You don't need a blood sacrifice for sin. That's just, that's old thinking. We know that's not the case anymore. What does this say about their view of sin and holiness? It just assumes that you have no problem before God. And, and it just assumes, well, maybe your only problem is, is yourself. And, you know, and so you need this self-help. The only problem is yourself, so maybe you just have some issues to work on. You don't have a problem with God. I mean, you're trying to believe in something bigger than yourself. You're trying to do good. God's not going to punish you if you're doing that. And so the problem is just something in yourself. You just have some issues to work on. And, you know, you just need love. You just need a life coach. See, all these ideas I'm trying to describe, they ignore the nature of our sin and Precisely, they ignore the need for a blood payment for sin. 
And so this doctrine that justification comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it rejects the claim that all religions lead to the same thing. That's, again, popular, very popular notion today. In fact, I saw a poll, and this shocked me, of evangelical conservative Christians took this poll, and over half of them believed that all religions lead to the same place. It blew me away. This is a very common notion today. Especially in light of the fact that Jesus is pretty clear on this point when in John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why does the world hate Christianity? Perhaps at least in our own day, the primary reason the world hates Christianity is because we make an exclusive truth claim that is centered around Jesus Christ as the only way to eternal life. And so people hear that today, and they say, you know, Christians are just too narrow. Christians are just too exclusive. Christians are just too intolerant. Christians are just too dogmatic. And there's a lot of problems with that argument, just intellectually. The problem is laziness. It's, it's lazy. And the devil preys upon lazy thinkers. It's lazy to say that all paths lead to God or they all lead to the same thing. It's lazy to say, you know, they all lead to the same place. Don't worry about it. You know, just try believe in something higher than yourself. You know, we can't know for sure. Just, just try to believe what you think is right, what you feel is right. Just try to believe that. And there's no God in heaven who's going to send you to hell if you're just trying to believe what you feel is right. Just don't worry about it. Just, just keep doing what you're doing. That's lazy. And, and the problem with the all paths argument, again, it's just as much a narrow dogma as saying Jesus is the only way. Just think about it. They're making the religious claim that all exclusive religious claims cannot be true. So then how can their exclusive religious claim be true? Their claim is just as exclusive. It is narrow and arrogant towards other religions, I guess we could say. And so they say that our exclusive truth claim, when we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and say that salvation is in Christ alone, they now say that's hate. Now, of course, it's not hate. We just, what they mean is we disagree. But they've now left us without a word to describe actual hate. Everett Piper summarizes their view very well when he says, this is their view. That's so common today, even, even in the church, apparently. This is their view. I hate you, hateful people. I can't tolerate your intolerance. I'm absolutely confident there are no absolutes. I know that nothing can be known. I'm sure that nothing is sure. Therefore, you Christians can't say that salvation is in Christ alone. So popular today. And, and what I want you to hear today, church, far too many Christians have been guilted by that argument and they really think there's something wrong with saying Salvation is in Christ alone. We've been guilted by this argument. We've been guilted by the argument that, that to preach salvation in Christ alone is hateful or arrogant. 
And what I want you to hear today is that's not true. That is not hateful to preach the gospel message of in Christ alone. And that's why we have to ask this important clarifying question on this day. Can there be salvation apart from Jesus Christ? The biblical answer is no. But that is not arrogant. That is not narrow. And that is not hateful. It's the truth. It's true. Like 2 plus 2 equals 4 is true. It doesn't equal 5. That's how truth works. We can't say that any combination of numbers add up to four. We can't say that all roads are equally good or equally true. And I get it. It sounds open. I get why Christians are guilted by this argument. It sounds open. It sounds inviting. And we're supposed to be loving, right? Like Jesus was loving. I totally understand it. I understand why we, we fall prey to this and we're guilted by this argument. It sounds open. It sounds inviting. But if you think about it, it's just as narrow, it's just as arrogant, it's just as lazy. But worse than all that, it's not true. We, as we saw in Scripture alone, we in our sin deserve eternal death in accordance with the holy standard of God. But the Lord Jesus Christ, because He loved us, took upon Himself the guilt of our sins and died in our place on Calvary's hill. Church, that's the truth. And it's not narrow because it's the truth. And it's not arrogant. Quite the opposite. The truth of Christ's love and grace, the truth of Christ's love is offered to all people. No matter their economic status, no matter their skin color, no matter if they live in a first world country or a third world country. It does not matter. The truth of Christ's love is offered to all people. Paul made this explicitly clear when he was preaching that sermon in Acts 17, verse 30, when he says, I command all people everywhere to repent. It's offered to everyone. There is nobody who is excluded from the offer of the love of Jesus Christ. All. It's made explicitly clear, clear in Scripture. All are invited to receive the wondrous gift of Christ. They are invited to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ as they stand before a just, holy God. Now, what we did a few weeks ago, you'll remember, is we established the fact that we stand on Scripture alone. And so what, what I need to show you then, if we're going to be consistent, what I need to show you is that the message of the Bible is that salvation in Christ alone is loving. It's explicitly clear in Scripture, I think, and I want to show you biblically, that salvation in Christ alone is not narrow, it's not arrogant, it's not unloving. So here's the argument of the Bible. Jesus Christ came for reunification, not division. Peter Lightheart does a great job developing this theme of redemptive historical theology. Jesus Christ came for reunification, not division. See, you and I live in a divided world. And I don't have to do five minutes of illustrations to make that point. The moment I say that, everybody in this room knows exactly what I'm talking about. We live in a divided world. But it didn't start this way. Humanity was created as one. When sin came, so came the division. Sin entered the world and it disrupted. Sin entered the world and it created division. 
It created tribalism, rivalry, and envy. You see it first between Adam and Eve, then between Cain and Abel, and then you see the division between Israel and all the surrounding nations. Because God chose Israel and then separated them out. That is, he made them holy. He separated Israel out from all the other nations. And what you need to see and what the scriptures show us is that when God does that and he chooses Israel, separates them from all the surrounding nations, the final goal is not separation. The final goal is not division. The point then is as he makes them holy and separates them, that God is then going to use Israel and use the mountain of Israel and use the seed of Israel To reunify the world. And so the goal in separating Israel out is not further division. The goal is reunion. Sin brings disruption. So that then means overcoming sin means reunion. And and much of the Old Testament is filled with this very theme. I want to show you just one place. It's this this theme in the Old Testament where these promises of reunion that are going to come through the mountain of Israel or through the seed of Israel, the true Israel, which we now know as Jesus Christ. So I want to show you Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, where you see this this promise of reunion that comes through Israel, that is Jesus. Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4. Look for it. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Verse four. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Do you see what's happening here? God separates Israel out so that then by making them holy, that is by making them separate from all the nations, then via the mountain of the Lord, the true Israel will be so beautiful and attractive that all the peoples of the earth will come to it. And that true Israel, as we know, is Jesus Christ. You see, you see this theme all throughout the Old Testament. If we had time, we'd go look at more. Like Psalm 87 is another really good one. There in Psalm 87, it talks about how all the peoples of the earth will one day become citizens of Israel. And so, why would is the case that you and I currently live in a time of many divisions? In Christ alone is inclusion for those from every tribe, tongue, peoples, and nation. And one of the things that we've got to hear today, church, is that repairing the divisions of our world is never going to come through treaties or diplomacy or politics. They have their place. But permanent repairing the divisions of the world will never come through those things. Repairing the divisions of our world will never come through legislation or education or equality. Repairing the divisions of broken humanity that live in a fractured world only comes in Christ alone. That's God's design from the very beginning when he separated Israel out in Deuteronomy 7. And Jesus Christ, as the true Israel, standing on the mountain of the Lord, attractive for all the world, has come to fulfill that promise of reunification. And then 
that promise of reunification is actually fulfilled when the church in this aid preaches the message in Christ alone. And that's actually the point of Galatians 3, but we're, we're out of time, so we can't go look at it. So, so you have to see that the gospel of Jesus Christ announces the fulfillment of God's plan for the human race, the fulfillment of the plan to unify those from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation for all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, yeah, it's exclusive in one sense, but it is inclusive in another sense because Christ's coming means reunion for a divided human race. And so as we wrap up this important clarifying question, can there be salvation apart from Jesus Christ? Well, the answer from Scripture alone is no. And even though the world labels that as hateful, narrow, arrogant, it was actually a great act of self-giving love when God made this rescue plan before the foundation of the world. And it is a great act of love for you, the church, to believe and then proclaim salvation in Christ alone. And so, as we, as we wrap up for today, what we've seen is first, that justification by grace alone through faith alone is made possible in Christ alone. And second, we've seen that salvation is impossible apart from Jesus Christ. That's not hateful. That's not arrogant. That is an act of love and reunification. If we had more time, we could, we could talk about how salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone solves other problems of human reality. And it does. Maybe that's something you can talk about in your next missional community group weekly gathering. But for now, we're going to leave it at that. So let's pray together. Father, we rejoice that your son Christ Jesus has accomplished once for all what you set him here to do. Father, on the cross, he proclaimed, it is finished. And through faith in him, Father, we know that we have peace with you where there was once division. And we can have peace with each other where there was once division. Father, I pray that these great truths of your work of salvation, Father, if, if they are met with a dull heart, an apathetic heart, Father, I pray that you would take the truth of Scripture alone and through your Spirit apply it in our heart and stir it in our hearts such that it would awaken true and authentic joy and action. Father, we need you for this. And Father, we pray all this for the sake of your name. Amen. Summit Crossing, we partake of the Lord's Supper every week. We've got some